Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. We are back. We have been on a bit of a hiatus this month with some things going on at church, but very excited to get back into the Gospels with some of the early stories of Jesus' ministries. Um, we didn't cover them all here because, again, of the aforementioned hiatus, but so far we've covered Jesus' birth. We had our Christmas in June episode. That was our last one. That was in, you guessed it, June. And since then, uh, in the Gospel Project materials, covered uh, Jesus' dedication at the temple and then also his baptism. So just so you know, that's kind of what we didn't cover here on the Bible Breakdown, but is where we've been. Today, we are going to be talking about the temptation of Jesus at the hands of Satan in Matthew 4. And so we're going to talk about that, the implications, the meaningfulness, and we're going to learn some new words. Um, in case you're wondering, you're like, oh, they must be Greek words. <gasps> They're actually rooted in Latin today. I don't know Latin. I just know that these words are rooted in Latin. I know what they mean in English. And uh, I'm ex looking forward to talking about them in English, a language that I'm somewhat familiar with. So, uh, and we're also going to see, um, this is something I want to emphasize too, as we talk about this uh, epic of Jesus' life. We're going to see how this temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is sort of the perfect, perfected version of Israel's journey in the wilderness. So when the people of Israel left Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, they messed up a bunch of times. So what we're going to see in part uh, as part of this is how Jesus is this perfect fulfillment of what the people of Israel should have been doing when they were facing difficulties in the wilderness. So we're going to kind of pepper that through as well. Um, the temptation of Jesus is one of the most theologically significant uh, events in all of Scripture because it has so many, uh, so many consequences, positive consequences uh, for what happens. It helps us understand uh, the nature of Jesus uh, as a man, fully man, fully God. It helps us understand the atonement, the fancy word that we use to talk about how he atoned for our sin on the cross. So it helps us understand that. Uh, so we're going to talk about all those things. I know it sounds like a lot. It is a lot. Uh, it's only 11 verses, but just so much meaning here. And then we're also going to see too, like there's there's really good practical application for us in this too, because we see literally what it would be like to fight temptation perfectly. And of course, we're all tempted. So there you go. We've got a lot on deck. Without further ado, let's jump in. We're in Matthew 4. Uh, there's also, this story is also in the, the book of Luke, also chapter 4 there. We're going to cover the Matthew one, um, but we're going to start with verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, I do just want to pause here, um, and I want to make it clear what's going on. Jesus has been led into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted. That means that he, it was on purpose. Okay, so it was for this purpose. It was on purpose. It was on purpose. Okay, seems obvious, right? But there's this is important. This is important that it's on purpose. One, and this is more of a, a little side rabbit trail, but we see the agency of the Holy Spirit. We see the personality of the Holy Spirit, right? Another data point for us to understand who the Holy Spirit is. So again, the Spirit leads Jesus. Um, you know, sometimes we can be tempted to think of the Holy Spirit as like a force of some sort. But remember, a force or like, you know, thinking about like the wind, the wind doesn't have a will. Persons have a will. 
the spirit has personality, one of the three persons of the Trinity. So we see this is just a, a kind of a small data point for us to more fully understand the ministry of the spirit and also the personality of the spirit. So just a good reminder for us that the spirit is not some generic force, but is uh, a, a person of the Trinity, meaning that there are person type qualities. And I'm not using person to mean like humanity, but more like a being with agency and character, things like that. Okay, so that was the side note. Now, kind of a little more directly related, this time of temptation was for a reason, and it was planned. Okay, so we see throughout the ministry of Jesus, he's never forced into anything. He is never surprised by anything. He submits himself willingly for a purpose. Okay, so he submits himself to here, the Spirit is leading by, under the will of the Father, that this is the purpose. He's going to be tempted by the devil. He wasn't just out fasting in the wilderness and Satan showed up. It was for this purpose. So that's important. Uh, also, um, this is a good note kind of to how it parallels Israel's journey a little bit. 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus, 40 days. Okay. There's a, there's a little, there's one of our strands that connects these two, these two things. Um, we'll talk more about that. That in itself is not fully sufficient to say that it mirrors the journey of Israel, but it is, again, it's a, it's one of the strings that connects their time in the wilderness to Jesus' time in the wilderness. And uh, after 40 days, we see here that he was hungry. Uh, I guess he would be after 40 days. Um, but we're going to see how this tempting is going to come. It's going to have three separate temptations. We're going to talk about each one of them. So moving down into verses 3 and 4. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here's the first temptation. Uh, starts with a uh, really uh, bratty statement of, if you are the son of God, Satan's so bratty. Um, can't, he comes to, well, if you're the son of God, you should be able to command, you're hungry, obviously, you should be able to command these stones to become loaves of bread. So that's kind of the first temptation. Now, it seems pretty harmless, right? He's hungry, he should make some bread out of stones. And in his ministry, Jesus often miracle makes bread where there shouldn't be, right? Feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. He makes things show up where things shouldn't be. And specifically, he's done that with bread already. So, and he's hungry. And the people in the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, they were hungry. And he's hungry. So, what's the problem? And here it is. The temptation itself is pretty simple. It's just bread. But really, it's an issue of trusting in God's provision. Jesus knew he didn't have to make bread for himself. He trusted in God's provision. So Jesus responds with scripture. And that's something, of course, we'll talk about in the application of how we can uh, fight against temptation. He responds with scripture to that effect. Basically, if it's right for him to wait and to trust the father's word that the father's going to take care of him, that he hasn't been led into the wilderness to die of hunger, right? But it's to trust in the father's word. It's not really about the bread. It's really about the trusting God for the provision. That's really where the temptation is. Or maybe you could even say to take his own initiative. Remember, Jesus, especially in the book of John, talks about how he submits himself to the will of the Father during his time on earth. So uh, Jesus was met with that provision issue in the wilderness. He trusted God, but you may remember how Israel responded when they were tested with the same thing. They were out in the wilderness. They were hungry. They grumbled those grumblers, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They said, at least even though we were in slavery, at least we were full and we had food. And they didn't trust God to 
provide for them. Now, of course, we know he provided them with a mana and quail, and he provided them with water and multiple instances, but they didn't trust God. When they were met with a, uh, a what they perceived as a lack of provision, they didn't trust God. They chose to grumble. They wanted to go back to where they had been, where God had freed them from. But when Jesus was faced with the same thing, where am I going to get my provision? He trusted God. So the way that Israel stumbled, Jesus did it perfectly. So the next temptation then, verses five through seven, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here we got an interesting temptation. Again, we get that if you are the son of God, he's kind of goading him to prove himself maybe in some way um, is kind of, I guess, what Satan's tactic is here, unsuccessful. But it's interesting temptation for Jesus to throw himself off the top of the temple because God's going to save him, right? He's going to be taken care of. And look, Satan says, here's some scripture to back up my point. Um, of how you should do this, because this is what scripture says. Um, and, you know, if I'm going to, if it's in scripture, that's fine, right? That's kind of the now, uh, he's kind of working it backwards. Well, we've got two issues here with this temptation. Okay, first, Satan is twisting the scripture to seem like it means something it doesn't. He's taking it, I hate to say this because people overuse this phrase, but out of context, right? He's using scripture to his own purpose not in the way that the scripture was originally written. Psalm 91, which is where this is from, is about how God is a refuge for those who are in trouble. And it's specifically thinking about trouble from others. It's not a blanket promise that will never get hurt, right? It's not a, a promise that nobody gets hurt. What a wild time we would have trying to make this true to life, right? If we were to say, okay, Psalm 91 means no matter what happens, I won't even have my foot strike against a stone. Uh, imagine us trying to explain how that's true to life to anyone, right? I have, I, I don't want to, I have struck my foot on a stone. So I, it has not held true to me the way that Satan is using this verse here. Now, has God been a refuge when I was in trouble? Absolutely he has, but that doesn't mean that I never was hurt, right? And I'm sure that the same is true for you. And I hope that the same is true for you, at least in finding God as a refuge. And I hope you know it's also okay that you have had times when you have been hurt and it doesn't feel like much of a refuge. That's part of being a human and being in a world that is unfortunately influenced by sin. That's the way it is. But we do know that God has promised that he is a refuge even when things around us are difficult, hurts us. So that's kind of the first of the issues here. He's, he's twisting the scripture to mean something it does not, right? And here's the second issue, and this is how Jesus responds with a scripture in the correct context, we're not to test God. That's the second problem with this temptation, uh, that the suggestion that he throw himself off to make God keep his promise that he actually didn't say that in that Psalm, right? It's a test. That's what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do is to give God a test. And Jesus, again, in context, properly responding with scripture because he's Jesus and he's awesome like that. We are not to test God. And that is the exact opposite of what Satan was suggesting. He wanted him to test God. So I thought also a bit on this, on why this might be tempting. Because if I was to take you up to at the top of a tall building, 
and said, are you tempted to jump off? I would bet the answer is no. You'd probably be like edging away from the from the side of the building, right? You would want to be toward the middle because jumping off of buildings is not something that we would say is generally tempting, right? Um, I don't think Jesus was just an adrenaline junkie who wanted to jump off of stuff. I don't think that really holds true to how we see him in the Gospels. So I was like, why is this really a temptation here? Um, other than to like prove, you know, again, that if you are the son of God, but I don't know, you already tried that. My only thought, and this is just a thought, this is a theory, this is an opinion. So take this for what it is. If he was at the temple and he jumped off and he was saved miraculously, wouldn't that be an incredible validation of him and his ministry? It would be hard to argue that the guy who jumped off the top of the temple and was protected by God isn't important, right? Whereas most of Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders especially, are questioning like this, this guy's not for real, right? So it's just a theory. Maybe the temptation would be, okay, if it all plays out like Satan says it would, um, wow, what kind of shortcut ministry um, to what uh, the actual ministry of Jesus ends up looking like? Hey, people would automatically know you were the son of God, right? But what we do know for certain, that's just my theory. What we do know for certain, that wasn't God's plan, God's timing for Jesus' ministry. So if that was perhaps the temptation, then it would have still been an act of disobedience to the Father's plan if he were to do that, even if it did play out, again, like Satan said. So anyways, again, just a theory about why that might be tempting. But now let's go back again to Israel. When Israel was in the desert, they did put the Lord to the test. There's a few times in Exodus and Deuteronomy where it's referenced that the people tested the Lord. Uh, Exodus 17, 7, he called the play, the name of the place Massah or, and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So in that story, it was one of the times they were whining about water. And this is the one where Moses strikes the rock, but he was supposed to strike the rock. That You don't hear about that one quite as much as the one where he wasn't supposed to strike the rock. But uh, this one, he was supposed to strike the rock and he didn't provide it for him. But it says that they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So that was kind of the nature of the test in case you're wondering, how did they test the Lord? I almost think of it also like testing the Lord's patience a little bit. Um, but kind of this like, well, is the Lord among us or not? Maybe if he gives us water. So what the writer of Exodus and then also in Deuteronomy, uh, what we see as the laws read a second time, we get some repeat that this says this is a testing of the Lord and they are not to put the Lord your God to the test. That uh, passage that Jesus uh, quotes is from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter six. So anyway, he answers again with the scripture in context. So in this wilderness experience, Jesus was obedient. He did not test the Lord. He did not feel the need to do that, unlike Israel. So again, where they stumbled and fell, Jesus did it perfectly. And then let's move on to the third temptation, verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So here Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, when I put some question marks in my notes, was, the world's not that glorious. I guess it is to him uh, in exchange for worship. So Satan's offering his glorious world, at least how he sees it. And he's, he says, uh, all you have to do is bow down and worship me. Um, so this probably happened 
Uh, in Luke 4, it kind of suggests like it, what it says in Luke 4 on this part is that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I kind of imagine like there's like this kind of almost like a vision kind of thing that Jesus gets in a little Rolodex of all the kingdoms. It's not like they could go somewhere and necessarily see all the kingdoms of the world or whatever. Um, so I kind of think of it as probably a, Luke 4 is a little more direct about how it seems more like it was like a vision. Um, but that's kind of how these kingdoms at least came before him. Um and so you may be, you've probably asked yourself this, or somebody has asked you this, and you said, uh, go to your room, I don't know the answer. Uh, is this really Satan's to offer? The king, all the kings of the world, is this Satan's to offer? And the answer is no, and it's also a little bit of yes. Okay, so ultimately the answer is no, and that's why no went before yes, even though conventional English, like I said, I'm fairly familiar with the language. Usually we would say yes and no, but it's more no and then a little yes. So no, the answer ultimately is no. Earth is on loan. Earth is on loan to Satan. But again, that's where the yes comes in. Also, yes, since while it's on loan, Satan says he can give power to other people. He, that's what he says. Uh, I don't think this is an attempt for him to uh, lie. Um, what we see in Scripture, and this is why it's a little bit of yes, is that Satan does have authority on earth. So in John, Jesus refers to him as the prince of this world multiple times. So meaning he has authority he has some dominion in the world and we see that to play out in life right and then the story of job shows that he's given the ability to act uh in evil ways on earth so again it's not a um that it's actually his but god does allow for his purposes um satan to have authority on earth it's part of the fact that we are not fully redeemed fully reconciled to god on this side of eternity is that satan does have influence on earth and to an extent authority which is not necessarily the most fun thing to realize but that's what we see in scripture is that of course it's all under the umbrella of god's uh, will of of god's omnipotence but he has allowed satan to have influence in the world and does this mean world like a rock like is that rock under satan's rule or is it more like humanity in its sinful state and its sinful institutions more the latter. Uh, you don't have to be afraid of the rocks. Um, be careful with the rocks, uh, but don't be afraid of them as if they are minions of Satan. Uh, it's probably more the authority, the influence he has on earth it has more to do with humanity in its sinful state. He does not have dominion or, or authority over God's people. Uh, we belong to him. We are children of God. We do not have to worry about being under his authority. We experience his influence and those who are under his authority willingly um, because of sin. Uh, but we do not have to fear uh, dominion or domination by Satan. We instead find ourselves, and this is always a little bit of a dicey place to be, but we're more in the shoes of Jesus in the story. We have the opportunity to experience temptation, but also reject it because of what Jesus has done for us, because he did the had the perfect uh, rejection of these temptations. So anyways, that's kind of what he's saying. But this temptation is to presented to Jesus is really what's being presented is it's an easier path potentially theoretically it's all theoretical right he would have quote-unquote authority in so much as satan can offer it without going to the cross now of course we know jesus has all authority he said at the end of matthew all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me so there you go right he has the authority he's in charge it's his he's going to receive the glory but at this point we know that there's a huge price for Jesus to pay in his humanity for what he will receive. 
we know that the suffering he's going to go through on earth is in the end glorious, but is also very difficult, right? But it's a non-starter. In what is written as most, I, I, I feel like this is written as his most emphatic rebuke. Jesus refuses to bow down to worship another. And then, of course, we're going to get another string and attach this story to the story of Israel. We know Israel in the wilderness did not make the choice to not worship another. They, in fact, at times settled for golden livestock. So Jesus chooses righteousness when Israel did not. Satan leaves and Jesus then is ministered to, which I think primarily means he was fed and things like that. I don't think they were like, you know, sharing the gospel with him or anything like that. Just giving him some food, probably. Ministering, we kind of think of ministering as like, oh, he must be doing like church pastoral work. Not, not necessarily. So this story, good one. Now here's the new words we're going to learn today. And this has to do with how we understand the temptation of Jesus. So the words you're going to learn today are peccability versus impeccability. So you've probably heard something described as impeccable before. These are more specific theological uh, words that we're using here. And here's what they mean. Peccability means Jesus could have sinned, but did not when he was tempted. Impeccability means Jesus could never have actually sinned, but his temptation was real. So those are kind of the two camps that we can view the temptation of Jesus through um, kind of a little bit of a lens. And it has um, some, you know, some differences in how we might apply that. Some, again, some things about uh, what that means about Jesus' humanity and how his um, humanity and his being God like play together. I do want to start by saying before we jump into this a little, uh, neither of these is a core is a core doctrine. It's not at risk for unbiblical belief as long as we don't violate other related beliefs. So Jesus' deity and his humanity, we don't want to demean those doctrines. Uh, we don't want to demean Jesus' sinlessness. So as long as we're not violating those, we're not really like you could believe it. You could say, yeah, I'm agreeing more with the peccability or I'm agreeing more with impeccability. It doesn't mean a person is a Christian or and not a Christian. That's not really what's at risk here. As long, again, as we hold to the fact Jesus is fully God, fully man, that he did not sin. Those are kind of the related beliefs here. Um, but we hold to those. We're good. Um, though I will give you my opinion. It is just an opinion because these are matters of theology, not as what scripture is telling us directly. So it is based on interpretation. Therefore, it is an opinion. And I will not say that this is exactly what God is saying. And, you know, because we've got these two camps and we're probably wrong on both of them to some extent. Right. So it is a tough one. It is a tough thing. Like, OK, so was Jesus able to sin and chose not to? OK, that sounds pretty good. That's kind of what it seems like, too. But does that mean Jesus could have sinned? So maybe I'm going to lean toward the other one that he couldn't have sinned, but then does that mean his temptation wasn't real? That's really, that's really where the rub is. If we believe that he could not have sinned, how could he have been tempted? Right? So this is what I'll say. I lean toward impeccability that Jesus could not have sinned. And here is why I lean that way. For me, it is harder to work out logically how you can truly be tempted if it's really impossible for you to sin, right? There's a logical difficulty there for us. But it's easier to explain how this fits with God's unchanging character. So God can't sin now, and he couldn't sin before this temptation. So was there a time when he was able to sin? Would that mean that God's character changed? 
So it gets a little a, a little dicey there. So that's why I tend to lean toward. I'm basically going to say I'm going to I'm going to accept that the logical part is a little tougher to deal with, but I'm going to stand firm in the fact like, but I know what God's character is, and God's character is that He does not sin. So that's why I would lean toward impeccability that Jesus could not have sinned, though his temptation was real. We know his temptation was real because obviously here we're seeing it and it's for that purpose, right? We talked about the purpose was for him to be tempted. So if the purpose was for him to be tempted, but he couldn't have been tempted, then it was a failed experiment, right? And that's not what it was. We also see in Hebrews, uh, it talks about we have a a high priest who uh, can sympathize with us um, because he also was tempted. So we know that Jesus was really tempted. So again, the the logical argument becomes a little difficult. Here's here's how I might try to explain it. And this is not a perfect explanation. Here's how I might try to think it. You may know about me that I have a poultry allergy, so I cannot eat chicken or turkey. I have eaten chicken and turkey. I don't miss turkey at all. Um, I do really like chicken. Um, And I stopped eating it probably about eight years ago. But I, so sometimes I will smell something like fried chicken and I'm like, man, that sounds really good. So if you were to say, Hey Blake, here's some fried chicken. I may be tempted by it, but I would not choose it. And I'm not perfect. So maybe out of a thousand times if you offered it, I choose once. I don't know. I can't imagine doing that to myself, but I, I'm tempted by it because it smells good. It looks good. I remember what it tastes like, but I wouldn't ever choose it because it's an allergy and that's a part of me. Like, and I know like this is just kind of this fried chicken as good as it looks is contrary to who I am as a person, unfortunately. So I kind of think about that as maybe a little bit helpful in explaining how this temptation would work with Jesus. Again, it's just a, it's just a human example about a guy who can't eat chicken. Um, but I hope it gives a little clarity that, yeah, he's, he was, saw the temptation for what it was, that it was tempting, but because of who Jesus is, he would never have chosen it. And not 999 out of 1,000, 1,000 out of 1,000, a million out of a million, because he's Jesus. He's perfect, not like me. So that's kind of how I'd explain it. Again, this is not a saved, unsaved issue. Um, It's more of a, how do we understand who Jesus is and how his temptations played out? And again, if we are not violating any other core doctrines about who Jesus is, if you are like, you know what, Blake, you're crazy, uh, I'm going to take peccability, then that's okay. And we could talk about it sometime. So moving on now from our uh, Latin root words that hopefully you'll remember forever and talk about at dinner. Uh, What I think this shows to the readers of this gospel, though, and this is here how I want to tie to this, possibly this impeccability to, so I guess we're not done with the words, sorry, to the the experience of the Jewish people in the wilderness and Jesus. I, I think there is an importance, too, about how this possibly ties to that, how this issue is related to how Jesus is mirroring that experience. If you were a person, especially a person of Jewish descent, and you're reading this story about this person who's in the wilderness, it shows you if this person was able to experience these temptations and not only didn't sin, but couldn't sin, that shows you that this person is totally different, that this is a Messiah, the one that we waited for. He didn't just not sin. Partially, he couldn't. He was unique. So recognizing, too, that there are some kind of implications for just the uniqueness of Jesus in the fact that he would go through the same temptations, and not only would he not choose to sin, but he almost, but that he couldn't even sin. Again, just another another thing to think about. So 
Regardless, though, whether he could have chosen to do that or he could not have, he didn't. And that's really what's most important, right? He sets an example for us. He uh, maintains his perfection, his sinlessness, which is, of course, important in when we think about the atonement. And so that's really the important part is he was tempted and he did not sin. That's that's the big takeaway from this in terms of who Jesus is as a person. If you don't remember anything else, remember that he was tempted and he did not sin. Okay. So in that also, we get to see a great example of what it looks like for us as people to try to resist temptation. So let's think about too some application that we have from this. The first thing is Jesus wins because he was faithful to God and that makes him the perfect ones for all sacrifice for us. So that's the big umbrella application. Like I said, if you don't remember anything else, it's that he was tempted and he was without sin. So Jesus wins. He is faithful to himself, faithful to God. That's kind of confusing because he is God. But he's perfect. He was the once for all sacrifice for us, and he was worthy of it. The only one who could have been worthy to be a once for all sacrifice for us, fulfilling the sacrificial system, he was without sin. He did what no other person did. He lived perfectly in obedience to God. So we can place our trust in him because he is the only one who could be worth it. So that's the big umbrella. Now, getting a little bit more to the uh, kind of brass tacks, we see what it looks like to counter temptation. Okay. Jesus used scripture when he was tempted. Now, I want us to also be realistic with ourselves. Uh, A, we're not never going to always resist temptation. So we can just kind of throw that out the window. And Jesus knew that when he died on the cross for your sins. He knew you would sometimes give in to temptation. Okay, so let's just call a spade a spade. We we sin, right? And let's also be realistic. If you are feeling tempted to sin and then you say a scripture to yourself, that does not mean that you will then not sin. You could very well re- recite said uh, you know, scripture about gossiping in your head to yourself 10 times in a row and then turn to your friend and gossip. I've been there. I've done that. I'm not proud of it, but I've done it. We can't just think this is like a magic bullet. It's not like a genie in a bottle. Like we say a scripture and we stop sinning, right? But here is here is what is important. A, if we are grounded in scripture, then we know from base level what's right and wrong, right? So scripture helps us understand temptation. So we know what is a temptation and what is just a thing, right? Because sometimes if we don't know our scripture well enough, we might think something that is actually a temptation to sin. We might think it's just a thing. And that's not a big deal. So knowing scripture helps us understand what sin is. So we know when there is temptation. And then second, the more grounded we are in scripture, the more we're hiding God's word in our heart, the more our heart and our minds are going to start to change toward doing things that God asks us to, to be obedient than to choosing our own way. So it's not a, a magic a magic wand like, okay, I, I quoted Deuteronomy 6.16 and so now I'll never sin. But it's this idea that having script, knowing scripture, knowing God's word, knowing what God says is obedience and what is disobedience helps us be aware. And then also it gives us encouragement to choose what is good, to remind us of who God is, to say that even when temptation seems really enticing, that he's the one who's actually worth it, not the temptation. So scripture is our best counter to the temptation, not because we just say it and it magically keeps us from doing anything wrong but because long-term and short-term, 
knowing God's word helps us understand and also reject sin because it points us to what is good and who is good, namely God. And then third, we can resist temptation because of Jesus' work. Because of the one who resisted temptation, we can resist temptation. Because if we're just caught in our sin without Jesus, we're just caught in our sin. And eventually we're just going to always break down and choose sin because that's our nature. But because of Jesus' work, if we've placed our faith in him, we receive the Holy Spirit who guides us into righteousness, who's growing us, sanctifying us. So we can resist temptation because Jesus resisted temptation perfectly. We won't do it perfectly, but he did it perfectly, giving us the opportunity to have the Holy Spirit so that we can actually choose what is good, to choose obedience to God. So that is all for today. I hope that uh, getting back in the, the rhythm of talking about God's word, um, scripture is an encouragement to you as it has been for me. And this is a great time just for us to remember who Jesus is, what he's done for us, so that ultimately we can be led to praise him. Music